Stuxnet. Designed to slow down Iran's nuclear program, the malicious computer virus is believed to be the world's first digital weapon. News outlets had reported that both the U.S. and Israel were behind it. But even now, years after the attack on the Natanz uranium enrichment plant, and long since researchers discovered Stuxnet on computers in other countries, the making of Stuxnet is still shrouded in secrecy. Now a famous documentary filmmaker is taking on that tough challenge, making a movie about a secret program that still government officials from either the U.S. or Israel won't publicly acknowledge. On this month's episode of a Cybersecurity Podcast, we caught up with Alex Gibney, director of the film Zero Days, which was just released here in the U.S. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's section on security and privacy in the digital age. Here on the Cybersecurity Podcast, we go beyond the headlines to interview some of the key leaders and thinkers in the field. But first, Sarah and I are going to do something a little bit different in how we've shooken up the podcast, and that's to talk about some of the more interesting things that we've been seeing and learning in our work in D.C. and also travels around the country, and even for me, travels outside the country recently. So, Sarah, tell us about what's one of the more interesting um, stories you came across in the last month. Yeah, one of the most interesting stories that Passcode has put out in uh, the last few weeks is by Anna Mulrine, and she talked uh, to David Dworkin, who's the teenager who hacked the Pentagon. It's pretty exciting stuff. Okay, teenager hacked the Pentagon. Sounds like war games. Catch us up here. Yeah, so more than 1,400 white hat hackers, ethical hackers, were invited to hack the Pentagon. Companies have been opening up their systems to outside hackers and giving them prizes and money to find security flaws. And we actually talked about that a couple episodes ago, if you remember, on on Yahoo's bug bounty program. Um, But... The U.S. government is getting into the game, and um, more than 250 of the people they invited found and submitted one vulnerability that they found on Pentagon systems, and one of them was this 18-year-old who said he did it for the T-shirts. Literally for the T-shirts. Yeah, he was pretty you know, into the idea of getting a T-shirt. He didn't actually win any money on this, but um, but other people did, and, and it was definitely good exposure for, for him. What's the amount of money that we're talking about here, particularly when you're comparing this to a Pentagon budget that's over $600 billion? Yeah, I mean, this pilot program seems to have benefited the Pentagon considerably. The whole thing cost $150,000. And if you compare that to the normal process to hire an outside firm to do a security audit and vulnerability assessment like this, the defense secretary said that it would have cost over $1 million. So it's a pretty good, pretty good deal for them, and people did make money. Um, the highest individual bounty Anna reported was $3,500, and the top-earning hacker made $15,000. So that's that's pretty good. Um, and then even though David, the 18-year-old, didn't win any, any money because the vulnerabilities he found had already been uh, reported, but he thinks of it as a way to serve his country. And he also got the fame of coverage in your uh, yeah. media now, the that's, podcast. That's true. That's true. But yeah, there's, a, it's, there's definitely something to being able to say he hacked the Pentagon. And uh, as a special prize, he got to go visit the Pentagon to meet Ash Carter, the defense secretary. And it's an interesting story because hackers are motivated by different things and it's not always just the money. But I think in this case, when you're talking about a Pentagon program, it's just an interesting story because, you know, he, the David, the 18-year-old, have heard about uh, the Pentagon bounty programs on. NPR and was invited to participate, but his AP advanced placement exams were happening at the same time. So he quickly went to work, found four or five vulnerabilities within the first 12 hours, and then went back to school. (laughs) 
<laughs> we have an 18 year old who's listening to NPR and hacking in the midst of his AP exams. He's going places. I mean, it, it actually know? points to no, but I mean, it points to one of the the benefits of the the bug bounty programs is it's not just a way of finding vulnerabilities, but it's also a way of um, pulling in unusual talent, connecting to unusual talent. Yeah, for sure. And he's going on to um, specialize in cybersecurity and his studies in school. I think he's going to uh, Northeastern University. And um, yeah, he's making us all feel like underachievers, or at least me. So (laughs) Peter, what is something interesting that you're up to these days? So what I am literally up to um, today is uh, preparing for congressional testimony. Uh, The um, House Oversight Committee Joint Subcommittee on IT and National Security is holding a hearing on uh, what they call digital acts of war and essentially how do we change the cybersecurity conversation. And for listeners of the show, uh, the um, one of the chairman who's hosting this hearing is actually Will Hurd, who we had had on previously. Uh, nice. So um, hopefully he'll be nice to me uh, because we were so nice to him on the podcast. You should definitely do a plug for the cybersecurity podcast when you're up there. <laughs> um, so walk us through what's going through your mind as you prepare for this. Uh, what is some of that process like as you get ready to head to the hill? So it, it's sort of a two-part process. Um, you are asked to submit written testimony. Uh, and that can be of any length. So I've been spending my time putting together essentially, you know, what I think should be, um, it, it, it breaks it down into a number of issues, but basically it's a written document. Um, and that has to go into them a couple of days uh, before the testimony itself. You also have to do a variety of disclosure forms where you basically, you know, say who you are and and that you're not taking money from, uh, you know, evil billionaires to say things on uh, in the testimony and that sort of thing. So you have to get all of these different forms in a row. Then um, you are given just five minutes in your initial testimony. So you have to take that written thing. So for me, it's a, you know, it's a 6,000 words and now I'm trying to boil it down into five minutes. Um, and so each of the people testifying gets five minutes and then you spend another couple hours with each of the members of the committee gets five minutes plus to ask you questions. And um, I found it, uh, you know, the, the challenge is not just the duration of it, but the wide range of topics that you might cover, but also, you know, for Congress, they each have five minutes, so they want to utilize it in the mm-hmm. best way to what interests them or to make certain points that they want to make. So everybody's uh, in a different way of putting it, everybody's sort of minding the time. Yeah, so that sounds that sounds challenging. What are you going to talk about? Tell us a little bit about that. So basically, my testimony is um, on two things. So one is laying out uh, the differences between um, the cybersecurity challenge uh, from the national uh, national security perspective. So kind of what does it mean to the nation and how it's different from the Cold War deterrence challenge. So to my frustration is that there's perhaps no national security problem that's more 21st century in both its 
technology and form, but also definition than cybersecurity. And yet to solve it, the ready solution in nearly every conversation we have takes us back to some kind of Cold War framework. And so, you know, I'm going to lay out, no, no, this is not the Cold War. Your grandfather's solutions aren't going to work here. There's fundamental differences to this. And, you know, we can go into those, but, you know, maybe a later conversation, but on everything from, you know, how there's no mutuality, there's no assured, there's no destruction. So the idea of mad doesn't work to back in the Cold War, you know, you had this very clear adversary, US, USSR, whereas today you have, you know, a diversity of um, threat actors that are out there from nations to non-state actors to the fuzzy groups in the middle to Cold War, you had, you know, basically nuclear deterrence was about one kind of attack, nuclear weapon coming at you cybersecurity, you know, many different forms of attack. So that's the first part of it. And then the second part is basically my solution. So it's um, here is a cybersecurity strategy for the U.S. that would be more workable. Notably, it's nonpartisan in these uh, tough times. And also notably, it's um, something that's fairly implementable because it doesn't rely on a big budget push. And essentially breaks it down into three areas. On one, how do we build norms? Two, how do we do what I call diversity, uh, deterrence through diversity? So, uh, you know, not trying to hit back the guy coming at you in the same way, but going after their interests in other areas. And then the final part of it is um, essentially the magic word of resilience. How do we build resilience and all the different things that government can do and everything from shoring up um, the human resources side to helping to build a cybersecurity insurance marketplace? Basically, how do we uh, make what, you know, theoretically you would call deterrence by denial? And deterrence by denial sounds complex, but it's basically the idea that the bad guy is less willing to attack you because they don't think their attacks are going to work. Great. Well, that sounds like a lot of ground to cover in the hearing. I hope they don't keep you there for five hours like they did FBI Director Comey. I will but. take a bathroom <laughs> break before I go in. And now we'll hear from Alex Gibney. He's the director of the new documentary, Zero Days. He's a producer and director known for a number of famous films, including Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, and We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks. As Zero Days premieres in the U.S., I chat with Gibney about the U.S. and Israeli plot to ensure Iran didn't get a nuclear weapon, the often frustrating secrecy of official Washington, and his surprise when he found out that Stuxnet was just a small part of a much broader U.S. plan to remotely disable Iran's infrastructure. Thanks so much for joining us, Alex. Delighted. So first, tell us what drew you to this particular project. Well, I knew a little bit about the Stuxnet story, but I, I think it was because I only knew a little bit, and it seemed like it was a, a bigger story than it was being made out to be, that I decided to, to, to dig in. And so how did it compare to some of the other documentaries that you've done? Well, it certainly was challenging in, in one sense, because nobody would talk to me <laughs> yeah. because of the, the classified nature of the program, even though it was outed and everybody was aware that this computer worm had spread all over the world. Uh, and everyone seemingly was aware that it was an attack launched by Israel in the United States on Iran. Nevertheless, nobody would admit it or even admit that it happened. So that was frustrating. And then it was also hard in the sense that my main character was a piece of computer code. Uh, and right. so as a filmmaker, that was the challenging 
development? Yeah, so on the first part of that, I was really struck by the first few minutes of the film where it sort of culminated in you saying this was really starting to piss you off because you had all of these people who seemed to have an interest in actually talking about this but weren't weren't able to. Was that what led you to find this other character and develop that or was that a part of the plan from the beginning? No, it wasn't. I mean, you know, I assumed that we would get more people to talk on the record. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, early on in the film, we have a montage of people saying, I can't talk about this, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, um, no, it's classified, can't talk, you know. But, but these were people who didn't just, weren't just interested in it. They knew very well what was going on and had intimate knowledge of it. And the frustrating part for me was that they simply wouldn't even address it in any kind of broad sense. It wasn't like I was asking them to give up secret codes or anything or betray agents in the field. So it had a kind of emperor's new clothes quality to it. It's like mm-hmm. everybody can see that the emperor's naked, but everybody's pretending that he's got clothes on. And at the end of the day, that led us down a path uh, all over the world trying to find people who would speak to this issue. And ultimately, we found some people inside the NSA who uh, did agree to speak to us under certain conditions. I'm curious about some of the technical challenges for a topic like this, too. Something so densely technical, how do you explain that to a general audience and make that come to life? And what were the general principles that you had when you were thinking about how to do this? Uh, The key thing was to frame this as a detective story. And in that sense, we were aided tremendously by two people we interviewed, uh, Eric Chen and Liam Omerku from Symantec, the antivirus company. They were able to describe how step-by-step, inch-by-inch, they were able to go through the code and actually understand it. They were the ones mm-hmm. who actually figured out what it was. Because when it landed on their desks, uh, they started to explore it, and they had never seen anything like it. Normally, a piece of malware, they can break down and identify in a few hours, maybe a day. Uh, this one took them months and months to figure out what it was, what it was designed to do, and they'd never seen anything like it before. It was unique. So they were able to explain to us that process by going back and reliving that discovery. They were able to tell us how, how it worked. And, and, and so I think in the film, it's, it's quite exciting. Mm-hmm. I think it, yeah, I think it is too. And for you personally, I'm curious, you know, wading into this technical topic, what was that challenge like for you to track the story and also to explain it on a personal level? Well, it was hard. I'm not a computer expert. And so there was a steep learning curve for me. But I've been down this road before a number of times. In a way, I'm sort of the the stand-in for for the average viewer. You know, Mm -hmm. if I can understand it, they can understand it. And so I went down that road. I mean, long ago, I did a film that had nothing to do with the internet. It was called Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. And to really understand Enron, you had to understand something about accounting. I know mm-hmm. nothing about accounting, but you know, I dug in and was able to get there. And I felt I could do the same thing here, ultimately. If I just hammered people with questions often enough, I could find a way to explain this arcane material to viewers. What was the most surprising thing that you learned uncovering this story? The most surprising thing was something that came out of our sources, which was that Stuxnet was just a tiny part of a much larger operation that Stuxnet really surfaced in 2010. But uh, right around the time, maybe only four or five years later, 
the sophistication of Stuxnet-like weapons had grown so enormously that it was revealed to us that the United States had a program called Nitro Zeus, mm -hmm. which was basically targeting various portions of the Iranian grid and was able to flip the country off at the, at the flick of a switch. That was shocking and surprising to us that already we had achieved the kind of science fiction cyber scenario that everybody had been talking about and that you had seen in movies like Die Hard 3 while we were there. That was a shocker. Yeah, and there too, were you surprised by the secrecy around that type of capability? Well, I wasn't surprised by the secrecy around that because nobody knew anything about that. Right. Um, and so, oddly, it didn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that it existed surprised me, but the secrecy didn't surprise me. The secrecy surprised me about Stuxnet because the operation was blown. It was known. Right. Right. Uh, it was well reported. That's what was frustrating. But there is this other question about norms and what's acceptable behavior in cyberspace. And there was one person who said that the norms just seems to be do whatever you can get away with as long as you can keep it behind closed doors. And so it seems to me that Nitro Zeus might fit into that as well. I mean, do you think that there should be a debate about about this, and especially now that it's out in your documentary? I think there should be a huge debate about it. I mean, that's one of the reasons I made the film. Mm -hmm. The point is that, you know, we need to understand the capability of these weapons. And because we're the most vulnerable, we meaning the United States of America, I mean, we're an intensely interconnected society. Mm -hmm. Electronically, you know, we have you know, toothbrushes that are connected to the internet. So these are all potential weapons. You know, I, I, I'm, not I'm not saying that, you know, suddenly the, the toothbrush is going to attack you while you're in the bathroom, but it basically, you know, we know that other countries have put cyber implants in our infrastructure, in water filtration plants, in electrical grids, in transportation hubs. And they're potentially waiting to flick the switch. Now, we also know that we're doing the same thing to other countries. But to keep all that secret is like keeping atomic weapons secret. It's uh, it's hugely dangerous. And, and, and so we need to talk about it. What has been the reaction since the film came out? I know that it debuted, I believe, in February in, in Berlin. So... You know, some of this news from the film has been, you know, trickling out as people see it around the around the world. What are some things that you're hearing, even from government officials or experts or policymakers, as they're looking at the information that you've discovered? Sadly, most of the government officials are staying absolutely silent about this. Even, and, even and, and I think even members of Congress uh, don't know that much about it. But members of the public who see the film are shocked. Uh, they have no idea that this kind of stuff is going on. So I suspect that the film will continue to raise hackles and hopefully will get uh, people to start demanding to know a little bit more. Yeah, that's a really that will be really interesting to watch. Um, you had a unique funding arrangement for this film, didn't you? So tell us how that came about. Uh, the film is financed by two sources. One, participant media. They're They're well known for doing... Uh, entertaining but but thought-provoking films, both documentaries, things like An Inconvenient Truth, and also uh, fiction films like Spotlight or Good Night and Good Luck. And they funded half the budget, and the other party that funded the other half was Universal Studios. This was brought to me originally by a guy named Mark Schmugger, who uh, was co-chairman, I believe, of Universal at, uh, for a certain period of time and had produced We Steal Secrets, my film about Julian Assange, and that was financed by Universal, so we were going back to the same territory. Okay. So part of what I was struck by in the film is the global nature of mm. 
of the film, but also, of course, tracking Stuxnet as it, you know, did spread and go to different places and get into the hands of people in Belarus, for instance. So what was it like to travel to so many parts of the globe for one one piece of computer code? I mean, it was really, it was a little bit like the born identity or something. We, In order to be able to fit the pieces of the puzzle together, we had to go to these different places. And you would get little pieces of the story each time you went someplace new, whether it be mm-hmm. Moscow for us, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and then, you know, all over the United States. Slowly but surely, you started to put it together. Because the thing about Stuxnet was it was supposed to be located very specifically inside the nuclear facility at Natanz in Iran. But by nature of its uh, of the device, it spread all over the world. So it really was a global story, and we had to follow it that way. And the U.S. folks, I imagine the folks who were in the NSA who were talking to you, blamed Israel pretty squarely for opening Pandora's box and getting out of Iran. I mean, do you? what did you make of that interplay? Uh, I found that fascinating. I mean, this was a technology that was shared by the U.S. and Israel. Strictly speaking, if you think of it as a missile, it had two components. One was the delivery system, the missile, and then the, the other part was the actual payload, what it did when it got there. The payload, we believe, was largely designed by the United States. The delivery system, which was the way it spread, uh, and it spread without people having to click on their computers. It would just, you know, if you were hooked up to a printer, it would automatically infect your computer. The delivery system was, by and large, designed by the Israelis. At a certain point in time, after uh, a particularly aggressive attack in which a thousand centrifuges blew up, and by the way, they blew up, and it was kind of an ingenious part of the code, they blew up, but the engineers at the Natanz plant were told by the code that all was well. So they started to doubt themselves. But in Israel, we're, we, our sources tell us, Bibi Netanyahu want more explosions, faster results, bigger, you know, more damage. And he put a lot of pressure on people to develop an even more aggressive system. That's when the Israelis tinkered with the code, uh, despite the protests of the United States. And that's what allowed it to spread, because they introduced some faults in the code, which started shutting people's computers down, and also caused it to spread virulently all over the world. Uh, so uh, we're, we're pretty certain that's precisely what happened. Political pressure by Bibi Netanyahu leads to the Mossad, Israel's um, intelligence agency, uh, moving too quickly, too fast to get aggressive with the worm, and that's what caused it to be discovered. And we talked a little bit about the reaction or non-reaction in the U.S. from government officials here, but if you heard anything from your Israeli viewers or sources that you talked to there about that in particular, that part of it? I mean, we, you know, before the film came out, we were pretty careful about trying to confirm these Mm -hmm. facts. And we're pretty confident that we were able to confirm the story that's in the film. So we heard that. But I think the, the, the ongoing maddening thing about this story is even the people who want to take credit for Stuxnet or know the mistakes that were made are refusing to talk publicly about it because officially Stuxnet never happened even though we know it did. And another part that was interesting to me is the DHS official who was treating Stuxnet as some sort of potential threat to U.S. critical infrastructure and how even he was kind of stuck in this maze of trying to get more information. Now that you've put together this film and you've um, 
talked to all sorts of different sources on this. What would be your policy recommendation, if you could make one, for the U.S. government to try to make sure that everybody is on the same page? Or do you think that this is working, this kind of siloing off of the, you know, the intelligence committee? No, I don't, think it's wor- I don't think it's working at all. And I think it's putting us all at risk, in part because the U.S. wants the capability of finding back doors into computer systems so that they can plant weapons all over the world. Uh, but that's a little bit scary. It means that they're hiding those vulnerabilities from us, the public. So I, I don't know what it's going to take, but it was really quite surprising that incident with the Department of Homeland Security, where we've got a guy who is charged with defending us mm-hmm. from attackers from without. He's terrified at the size and scope of this new worm, which is infecting computers. Uh, he's trying to shut it down, not realizing that, uh, you know, a few miles away were the people who developed the weapon and just didn't bother to share the information with him. Have you been following any of these policy discussions that are going on now? I mean, there's the encryption uh, backdoor issue, government access to that, and some of the other, even just recently, this debate about Rule 41 and um, expanding mass hacking and being able to give the government permission to hack into multiple computers with one warrant. Yeah, look, I I have been following that debate. I certainly followed the Apple debate regarding Mm -hmm. the San Bernardino shooters. And I think what the government doesn't seem to understand is that when you design software with backdoors. It's not the government only that can get in through those backdoors. It means that everybody can sooner or later. This is the dilemma that we have with technology. And uh, I think on the other side, you know, there are a lot of people who, uh, a lot of hackers who put their faith in encryption. Ultimately, codes can be broken. So it's going to take a kind of ongoing vigilance uh, to make sure that we get this right going forward. I think the government's approach so far has been wrongheaded. Richard Clark and others have have argued strongly that uh, we need better encryption because that's going to protect us not only against our own government, but against other governments like China or Russia, Iran, who are trying to get into our computers. And what do you think about the idea of, you know, a lot of, you said that a lot of your viewers were surprised that these things were going on and that this was an eye-opener for them. Do you think that as there are more films and more TV shows that are accurate and actually depicting the code and depicting the story that awareness on the public level is going to rise? I hope so, because uh, we're all affected by this stuff. And the kind of sci-fi world in which machines can be remotely operated by people who seek to do ill uh, is going to increase. One question that we ask all of our podcast guests, it's maybe the most important question of all is, what is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? Um, Favorite as in you love it and you think it's really accurate or favorite as in you hate it and you think it's totally not accurate. And I'm curious for your take in particular because obviously documentary is nonfiction. But any any thoughts on this? I mean, you know, I I haven't seen them all, but I was a big fan of iRobot. I think that's, um, you know, fun and certainly... um, it was funny, a, a number of antivirus folks that I talked to, including uh, Eugene Kaspersky in Moscow, said, if you, if, if you want to know what these weapons are capable of, take a look at Die Hard 3. Really? <laughs> yeah. Now, Die Hard 3 at the time was kind of a joke, a sort of over-the-top 
depiction. I think it is kind of over the top for the moment, but it does give you a flavor of the kind of ways in which uh, these cyber weapons can infect major pieces of, of infrastructure. That's the part that people don't get. If you think about code, you think, okay, it's something that does damage from computer to computer, but it's the ability of code to take over programmable logic uh, controllers, PLCs, mm -hmm. that is the scary part. And so many of our of these machines were attached to the internet without any thought given to security. And that is a, a, a grave concern, I think. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Delighted. Thanks again to Alex for a great conversation. And join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. Be sure to subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.